Hi, everyone. I'm attorney Donna DiMaggio Berger, and this is Take It to the Board, where we speak condo and HOA. My guest today is a published author, a well-known community association attorney, and one of the premier experts on parliamentary procedure in the United States. Jim Slaughter is a partner at Law Firm Carolinas. He is a certified professional parliamentarian teacher and professional registered parliamentarian and past president of both CAI's College of Community Association Lawyers and the American College of Parliamentary Lawyers. He is past president of the North Carolina chapter of the Community Associations Institute. Jim has authored four books on proper meeting procedure. He attended the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, where he majored in American history and also attended UNC for law school. Jim, welcome to Take It to the Board. Thank you for having me, Donna. I'm going to say right at the outset, Jim, I am not a parliamentary procedure expert. So I'm going to learn a lot in this episode today, as well as all the people listening. Let's start with the basics. Who was Henry Martin Robert, the Robert in Robert's Rules of Order? And what does it mean, Jim, to be a parliamentarian? Well, Robert was fairly interesting. He was from South Carolina. He was the son of a a Baptist abolitionist minister from Robertville, South Carolina. He ended up being a a brigadier general in the Army Corps of Engineers. In fact, he built the uh, Galveston Seawall, among other things. But most people know him because of parliamentary procedure. When he was in the Union Army, he was stationed up north in Massachusetts, and he was asked to run a meeting about the defense of the city during the Civil War. And he thought, how hard can it be to run a meeting? And so he offered to do it. And his comment was that he prayed to Providence that everybody would behave. But as you know, Donna, people don't don't ever behave. And apparently it was the worst experience of his life. And he said he would never attend another meeting until he learned about parliamentary procedure. And he went out and looked and eventually decided there wasn't that much out there. And he would he would see about writing his own book. You know, I can see right off the bat where that American history major is coming in that has tied into your parliamentary knowledge. And I said at the intro that you are, you know, you're a parliamentarian teacher. What does that really mean? Certainly. Well, there there are two national organizations that train and certify parliamentarians. You you can study parliamentary procedure. There's there's not a state licensure for parliamentarians. So you, you could say you're a parliamentarian. But if you want people to know that you know something about parliamentary procedure, there are two national organizations. The National Association of Parliamentarians is focused predominantly on Roberts. Uh, there are other parliamentary procedure books beyond Roberts, and some groups, uh, some organizations don't use Robert. They use a different book altogether. The American Institute of Parliamentarians includes those other books, and each of these organizations have programs. They have educational programs. They have certifications for parliamentarians. So it basically tends to be people that have learned procedure because of what you do, or because they've been at meetings and they decide, you know, I'd like to go a little further. But there's an accreditation associated with it, right? In other words, I can't just read a book and say, I'm a parliamentarian. Well, you could read a book and say, I'm a parliamentarian, because the parliamentary police are not going to show up and do anything to you. But (laughs) both organizations do have credentials. Uh, They have three levels of certification, depending on, on what tests you have taken over time. So as I said in the intro, you've written a number of books. That tells me, since you've written all these books, Jim, that you think this is a crucial topic for HOA, condominium, cooperative boards, for them to know and understand. Why is it so crucial? And and you've asked two questions there, Donna. Why (laughs) did I get interested in this? Which I will tell you, like most people, I went to a meeting when I was a junior in high school and I had a 
plan that I was going to do something. And the next thing I knew, the chair told me my motion was not in order because something else had happened. And I realized I had just gotten run over by somebody. And I decided at that moment I was going to at least learn enough procedure to protect my rights and the rights of, of people that were with me. And so my interest in procedure is like a lot of people, something happened at a meeting and I decided I better go learn something about this. Uh, in, in terms of particularly HOAs and condos, Absolutely. Uh, I would say that people should know the basics of procedure because associations are creatures of meetings. We have board meetings, we have membership meetings, we have special meetings, we have budget meetings, we have committee meetings. Uh, as you know, because you're so active with this, there are 355,000 community associations in the United States. And of course, Florida is the second highest number of community associations in the country. So there are a lot of meetings. And people want to be heard, right? So the, the boards want to get something done. And the members want to be heard. So to your point, Robert's Rules of Order sort of lays a groundwork, does it, to make that happen, to accomplish, for the board to get the business of the association accomplished, and for the people in attendance to feel like they have an opportunity to be heard. It, it does. But I, I will start off at the beginning here to point out there's, there's a difference between parliamentary procedure and Robert's Rules of Order. Robert's Rules of Order is all of the procedures that go into running uh, a meeting. It would include, did you send out notice of the meeting? Are there enough people at the meeting, a quorum for you to take action? Is there a discussion? Is there a vote? Recognize that Roberts is a book on parliamentary procedure. It's the most popular book on parliamentary procedure. It's the 800-pound gorilla of the parliamentary procedure world. But I can say with some confidence, associations in Florida need to follow parliamentary procedure because that would include the statutes that go into running the meetings. It would go into following the bylaws provisions they have about the meetings. They might not necessarily have to follow Roberts. That's a different issue. So let's talk about that. In Florida, there's nothing in the statute, in the shared ownership statutes, that requires boards to follow parliamentary procedure. Now, in some governing documents, they do, and some of them even specify Roberts' rules of order. Some of them even specify a specific addition of Robert's rule of order, which is going to be problematic. We're going to talk later about how many editions. It's been 12 editions, correct? That's yeah. correct. It's in the 12th edition. And, and I will stop you just to say, do keep in mind, though, because you and I were wordsmiths, that parliamentary procedure would matter to those associations because, again, that's everything that goes into running a legal and effective meeting, whether it's following the statutes, following the governing documents, or following a parliamentary manual. Roberts is a parliamentary manual, which in Florida, since there's no state statute, like in some other states, there are about seven states where Roberts is defined as the parliamentary authority for board and membership meetings of community associations. But if you don't have such a statute, then Roberts, the book, would only officially apply to an association if they have adopted as a parliamentary authority in their governing documents like their, their bylaws. Otherwise, it's just a good resource and it can make meetings shorter and it can make them fair and it's something to know, but you would not be you would not be bound by it as much as you would if it is your adopted parliamentary authority. So your book, Robert's Rules of Order, Fast Track, it became available just last month and it's already the number one new release in its category on Amazon. So I looked online and the book is designed to give people the tools to conduct shorter, fairer, more orderly meetings. So tell me, how does using... Robert's Rules of Order, or parliamentary procedures speed up meetings and make them fairer, in your opinion. At the end of the day, you don't have to know the whole book. You should know at least the basics of procedure if you if you run or ha are active in meetings. And that's going to include things like how do you give notice of a meeting? How do you call a meeting to order? 
when business comes forward, how is a motion made and just how do you process the motion? How are people recognized during debate? I mean, it's very much about fairness. If, if you use procedure properly, and by that I mean not getting bogged down in the minutia, it absolutely can make decisions shorter and it can make decisions fair. So as you know, many of our associations are professionally managed. What's the role of the manager in all of this? I know a lot of boards, and I'm sure you've been out to so many meetings, Jim, where maybe the board, they really don't want to be the ones running the meeting, especially for the attorneys not present. They may put that on the manager. What role do you see the manager playing in terms of enforcing parliamentary procedure? Normally, the notice starts with the manager sending that out, unless you're dealing with a self-managed community. It does. And it's fine for the manager to know procedure. Of course, at the end of the day, the person running the meeting is probably going to need to know the basics. And by the basics, I just mean how to process a motion. I know you basically asked me what time it is, Donna. I'm going to tell you how to build a a, a watch. Uh, You mentioned boards. I will at least mention a, a, a A myth about parliamentary procedure is there's one type of procedure, there's not. There's different procedure for different groups. And the biggest distinction is that large meetings and smaller meetings are supposed to follow basically different procedure. Large meetings tend to be formal because in a group of 10,000 or 1,000, you kind of have to be formal. I mean, Donna gets recognized. She speaks. When she's done, she doesn't get to talk again if somebody else wants to speak a first time. Only if everybody speaks a first time does Donna get recognized a second time, and then she's done for that motion for the day. We're trying to be fair by being formal. On the other hand, Roberts recognizes that same type of formality will likely hinder a small board. So Roberts has a completely different procedure for smaller boards, particularly boards smaller than 12. The problem is you don't find it until you get into section 49 of Roberts, which is near the back. And of course, nobody's ever gotten to the back of Robert Schulz's order. But it suggests that boards can be much less formal. You don't have to have seconds to motions. You can discuss things without a motion. The chair is normally a full participant and can speak and vote on motions. Debate's not limited. So again, keep in mind, you mentioned board. If, if a board is getting into the minutia of parliamentary procedure, they've missed the part of the book where boards are not supposed to get into complicated procedure. Well, let's talk about that because I'm sure you've attended board meetings throughout the course of your career where it's gone crazy. (laughs) It's gone off the rails. You've got people talking over each other and sometimes it can even devolve into threatened violence or actual violence. So how would parliamentary procedure help them keep the meeting on track? Let's say it's a special assessment meeting. You know, they say that's the, those are the two dirtiest words in community association land is special assessment. And as you know, down here in Florida, Jim, right now, we've got thousands of associations that are working to address deferred maintenance, to now catch up on reserve funding that's been waived for far too long. We've got a new condo safety bill in Florida. Mm-hmm. These are going to be really contentious board meetings because you've got people attending who are saying, we're not going to be able to afford to live here. How can parliamentary procedure keep those meetings on track? I'm going to separate again, membership meeting from board meeting because membership meetings tend to be more formal. Boards don't have to be as formal, but if you were following more formal procedure, there are a number of things in Roberts that are designed to tamp down the hostility possibly in a meeting. Because at the end of the day, if you synthesize 714 pages of Roberts, what it basically is, is we're going to have a meeting. It's going to be a fair meeting. People are going to get to say what they want to say within reason because there's some limitations on debate. And then we're going to take a vote. And whoever has the most votes is going to win this fight. When people know that they're going to have a fair shake, they're going to get to speak, it's going to, there's going to be a vote, people tend to behave pretty well. It's where they feel like they're not going to get a fair shake 
or rules are imposed upon them of ridiculously short speaking limits. I mean, I'll mention in Roberts, Roberts actually allows people to talk 10 minutes at a time. That may be too long, but I've also seen virtual meetings where people were told they had 30 seconds to one minute to say everything about an important issue. And that, of course, is too short. If people feel like they are being treated unfairly and there's not going to be open debate and possibly there will not be a fair vote, that's when you tend to get people upset. Uh, Roberts and parliamentary procedure generally are about notice and fairness. Does Roberts address the actual substance of the comments made in terms of somebody stands up and they're making slanderous statements or they're spreading misinformation? Is there anything in Roberts that would allow a board to stop somebody midstream when they're making those kinds of comments? Uh, There are. There there are a number of debate rules, but they include things like generally under Roberts, you only discuss one issue at a time. We're not discussing every issue somebody's got. We're just discussing this one proposal to raise assessments this amount of money. In fact, if an amendment is made, you just focus on that one amendment. Everything else is forgotten one amendment at a time. In Roberts, all remarks are supposed to be addressed to the chair. Why? Because it's much less personal and insulting when comments are made to the chair about some past comment that was made versus me just turning directly to Donna and saying, how dare you say such and such? The chair would immediately want to stop something like that. Roberts also says you're supposed to avoid names in debate because that's to prevent it from becoming as personal. And you're supposed to avoid any comments of of any type of derogatory nature towards another person because the focus of the discussion is supposed to be on the motion that is on the floor, not the people that are recommending it, but the motion itself. And again, as already mentioned, everybody has a right to speak. You're supposed to speak one time. And then once you've done that one time at speaking, you're not supposed to speak a second time as long as there are other people who want to speak a first time. That's because we'd rather hear from six people one time than one person six times. And then debate normally would continue until either the body decides by a vote they wish to close debate or uh, until nobody else wants to debate. So again, as you can kind of tell, all these rules are, are sort of fundamental fairness. How do we want to treat others like we wish to be treated type rules just codified into parliamentary procedure? So do you recommend, Jim, for let's say a larger community, a couple hundred units, a couple hundred homes and a homeowners association, we're going to follow parliamentary procedure, but 90% or more of our residents don't know what that means. So just like you said, addressing the chair rather than turning around and addressing your neighbor with whom you're having the nuisance complaint or the parking dispute, do you recommend that boards or communities send out like a cheat sheet or like a primer on, on parliamentary procedure before the meeting? Because otherwise I could see you're going to have to explain this when somebody says, well, why? And then perhaps you're going to have to take time out of the meeting to try to explain parliamentary procedure. And this is what Roberts say and flipping back and forth on the pages. Do you recommend some sort of pre-meeting education on following that procedure? Because you're so good at this, Donna, your questions, of course, have a lot of parts, uh, including that one you just asked. For For the states that have mandated Roberts as a parliamentary authority, which would be North Carolina, Oregon, Hawaii, Connecticut. I mean, there are others, but the ones that have done that have viewed it as an owner protection statute because with no book of rules, it could be argued when you show up at a meeting, who's deciding what the rules are? Well, the chair is. And what do you do if you don't like what the chair is doing? Well, too bad. I mean, who's to say the chair can't just decide everything that's going to be done? Does Donna get to talk? How long does Donna get to talk? Maybe we don't want to hear from Donna at this meeting because she's annoyed me. If you have no rules, 
what are the rules? Thomas Jefferson had a quote about that, you know, some rule is better than than no rules, because at least then you know what it is. He'd prefer a bad rule over no rule. And that's because at least then he knew what it was. That's the reason some states have adopted a parliamentary authority. Until recently, the Model Condominium and Common Interest Ownership Act, in fact, said the default was Roberts, but an organization could always change it to something else. The idea, though, was to give us some playbook by which we all can know what the rules are for the meeting. So yes, I would prefer some rules over new rules. I'm not saying you have to adopt Roberts, but it would be good to at least have meeting rules that say, how does someone get recognized, whether it's a virtual meeting or an in-person meeting? How long can people speak? How long will debate on this topic go on? And some, some other things that just let everybody know, how do I participate in this meeting and how is the decision going to be made at the end of the day? Well, I know we have Florida legislators who tune into this show, but uh, hopefully they're listening because in Florida, we don't have that requirement under the statute that there be any rules. So we've been to some very lawless meetings where just what you said, the chair may say, I'm shutting down all comments. I've had it. We're going to get out of here in the next 30 minutes and we're done. And you're right. The people living in that community really don't have much to say. But Jim, assuming that a community's governing documents require the board to adhere to specifically to Robert's Rules of Order, let's take the example of a board meeting, because this is the board making the decision, not a membership meeting. Board's going to meet and they're going to discuss selecting a contractor for a roofing project. Could you walk us through the meeting process from start to finish in terms of accomplishing that agenda item? Certainly. In terms of the meeting itself, of course, under Roberts, there would be sort of an order to the business, which is you don't call a meeting to order, whether it's a board or a membership meeting, unless there are enough people there for it to be a legal meeting. That, that fancy word, of course, is quorum. If you've got quorum, the chair would call the meeting to order. Uh, the standard order of business in Roberts is the one that we see at so many types of meetings around the world, which is the meeting gets called to order. Usually there are is minutes approval of the last meeting. Normally, then there are reports of officers or committees that tell us what they are doing and if anything is coming out of those reports. Then there's unfinished business, by the way, as an aside. There is no parliamentary term old business. That word does not exist in Roberts, and I'd recommend not using it because when a chair asks for old business, that sounds like it's the part of the meeting where we get to talk about any old thing that we've ever talked about in the history of our association. And that's not what it is. Unfinished business is business the board did not complete at its last board meeting. And then we move into new business, which is where this new topic would come up that you just mentioned. Normally, what you would do in a board, and again, a board can be less formal. So I'll, I'll take this two ways. In a board, following informal board procedure under Roberts, the board could talk about it for a while. They could actually refine what they have in mind. They could kind of hash it out. There's nothing wrong with a board sitting around a kitchen table just talking about stuff and, and arriving at kind of a feel for what they want to do. And then before emotions made. Before emotions made. That, that's a, that's okay. a board. That's a board. Boards don't have to be as formal. And then you could end up with two things. Many things in boards are accomplished just by the chair asking if there's any objection to doing something. Is there any objection to us keeping our landscaper from this past year for another year at the same, at the same contract rate? Hearing no objection, we've adopted the motion that we're going to keep the lands. I mean, that was an actual motion. It was adopted, but because it was prefaced by the chair saying, is there any objection to, and no one objected, that's the same as a motion being moved, getting a second, discussing and voting all in one fell swoop because no one opposed the matter. I, I recommend chairs use unanimous consent 
on anything non-controversial. Is there any objection to approving the minutes? Is there any objection to taking a 10-minute recess? If somebody objects, it just means you, you take the time to get a motion and you get a discussion and you take a vote. But I want to be clear, in the example you just gave, Jim, when, when the chair is asking, is there any objection, he or she is referring to fellow board members. That's correct. Just members. Of- Not the members, right. Because a lot of times the owners in attendance will say, oh, I object to that. This is a board meeting where the board is doing the business of the association. Meetings, except mod- as modified by statute, meetings are for members in the sense that members of that particular group, board members at a board meeting, committee members at a committee meeting, members at a membership meeting, get to discuss the matter and they get to vote. Sometimes state statute, particularly with community associations, of course, will give homeowners, owners, the right to notice of board meetings and the right to attend board meetings and sometimes the right to speak on specific issues at the board meeting. But that does not make them board members. And typically they do not have the right to vote unless they're a board member. So we're doing an informal board meeting. And so the chair could, after calling the meeting to order, establishing that there's a quorum of directors present so you can proceed, could say, but in this case, I don't know that it would be an objection because it's a brand new contractor. Well, it's a brand so new contractor. And again, it, it may be easier to hop over to formal. Let's say for some reason this board has decided that this is so much money or we might get sued over this or we might end up on television over this. And so even though we're a small board, we're going to treat this formally. We're going to treat it just like we would at the membership meeting with a thousand people or with a hundred people. Typically in Roberts, once you go above about 12, you get into more formal procedure. In a formal setting, the way this would play out would be either the chair or possibly a committee. A committee might recommend that we've looked at three general contractors And this is what we thought of one. This is what we thought of the second. This is what we thought of the third. And then the committee or a member might say on behalf of the committee, I move that we hire this general contractor to do this specific job. In formal procedure, you'd want a second, which means someone would second the motion. Seconder doesn't mean they like the motion. They just are saying, I think this ought to be talked about. And in formal procedure, if you don't have a second, a motion does not move forward. It just stops right there when the person makes it. But if you get a motion and a second, then the chair pretends to be a big parrot, and basically says back what just happened. It is moved and seconded. So they they repeat back the motion. Then they ask, is there any discussion? They would call on the person who made the motion to start us off. And then the chair basically acts as a referee, and their job is not not to show favorites, not to say anything that uh, would be considered debate, but would be to call on people who wish to speak for this motion or against this motion and to alternate as much as possible pro and con. And to stick with those rules we talked about earlier, which is we call on people who have not spoken ahead of people who have spoken. We don't call on people a third time. And then it's possible, Donna, somebody thinks, well, I have a problem with this with this motion because the the money is wrong. Well, they might move an amendment. They could move to amend the motion by striking this number, inserting another number. And we would go completely off on that amendment, leaving everything else behind. And we would discuss nothing. But should it be this number or this number? And we would discuss that pro con, pro con, pro con. And eventually there will be a vote either because debates closed or because nobody else wants to talk. And we'll vote that amendment, either the first number or the second number. And then we're back to the whole proposal that we hire this general contractor for this job, for X amount of dollars, and there might be more discussion. And eventually there'll be a vote on that motion and the entire motion will either pass or it will fail, usually based on a a voice vote of all those in favor say aye, all those opposed say no. However, in a board, Roberts notes that typically because it's a small group, people just vote by raising their hands 
in board and committee meetings. They don't have to use voice or secret ballot or anything like that. So that's that's sort of the layout of a typical motion. But as you can see, it's all about fairness. Let's talk about it until you don't want to talk anymore. And then we'll vote on it. And somebody is going to have more votes than the other side. So you've got a motion. You've got a second. Now, typically, I will say it opens it up for discussion amongst the board members first and then opens once the board members have finished having their say on the pending motion. Then we open it up to the membership. Am I doing that well, correctly, Jim? You, well, of course, I'm going to say you're doing it correctly because you are the subject matter <laughs> expert here on the state of Florida. Florida has a, a statute that a lot of other states do not have. For instance, in North Carolina, there is no right of members to show up at a board meeting and to say stuff. That's, that's a sunshine law, governmental body type thing. For states that have that statute, I, I would have them take your advice on the best time to do it. I, I know you and other people in your firm. I've seen articles by uh, Joe Adams before on uh, this particular issue that it seems like it's done a variety of ways. The point, of course, is I see sometimes that this discussion takes place before the matter's even on the floor because it's a public comment period. Sometimes I see it while the board is speaking, but then it kind of seems like the members are debating the issue along with the the members of the board, which is a bit unusual, but there's no point in doing it after the vote because it doesn't make sense to do it at that point. I agree with you because that's the whole point. I do know some attorneys in some communities where they keep the comments on the agenda items at the end, but that defeats the whole purpose of having any sort of input because look, these meetings are not, I don't know about North Carolina. I will tell you in Florida, they're not typically, there's not a huge turnout. Again, unless it's a a meeting where there's going to be a special assessment or there's a huge project going on. But for the most part, we don't get great participation at the meetings. But the thought is always there. If I go, maybe my comment as an owner is going to influence the board and they're going to see it a different way. So to do that, What I suggest is first, when you've got the motion and it's been seconded, obviously the board goes first. And then before the vote, does anybody, you know, in attendance, any members have anything to speak about on this particular motion? And and Donna, since you raised this specific issue, it's one of the most important things I think we're going to talk about. People think uh, Robert's Rules of Order is this really big thing. Well, keep in mind that in the food chain of things to be concerned about at the meeting, Robert's is at the bottom of of that pyramid. And the reason I say that is if your parliamentary authority is Robert's Rules because of the bylaws or in states where they have a state statute, it fills in the gaps that aren't already covered by your governing documents, which would be any special rules you've adopted by the bylaws. And of course, the bylaws yield a state statute. And the only reason that we're having members come to this board meeting and being allowed to speak by right is because there's a state statute in Florida that allows that to happen. So again, Roberts is not at the top of the list. You know, State statute wins. Beneath state statute would be governing documents. Beneath governing documents would be Roberts. So often I find people who think Roberts is at the very top of the list and it's not. It's at the bottom. Back to the example. So we've had the motion. It's been seconded. Now somebody has amended it to say, wait a second, I think we can do better. I like this other contractor. That amended motion does not receive a second. Now we go back to the original motion, and we take that up, correct? And I may have missed your facts there, so I want to make certain. When we're discussing a motion to hire a general contractor to do this job uh, for this amount of money, and while we are discussing it, a member thinks, oh, this is far too much money to spend on this contractor. I move to amend it to cut the dollar figure in half. If no one seconded that motion, and if you are following formal procedure, because again, you don't have to have seconds in boards, but if you're following formal procedure, then 
Roberts would say, the chair would say something like, because there is no second, that motion is not before us. Is there further discussion on the motion to hire this general contractor to do this job for this amount of money? So in in formal procedure, you need a second for a a motion to get out of the gate. Uh, But again, boards boards can follow a much more relaxed procedure. If, If nothing else, I hope the listeners to this podcast will realize at the end of the day, these rules are not being forced upon them. They have the ability to decide what they wish their rules to be, whether it's to have a, a follow Roberts as a parliamentary authority because of language in the bylaws, uh, whether it's because they have a rule that every, everybody gets to talk five minutes instead of 10 minutes. So except for what might be in the bylaws or what might be statutory, the members of a board or the members of a membership group have great say in what the, the rules they are to be governed by are. So you know, as well as I do, that there's a lot of states that have very abbreviated shared ownership statutes. I know the uniform, the Ukoya statutes, the uniform common interest statute is the goal, but I I don't see that ever happening in Florida, to be truthful with you. Let's say that we have no statute requiring a board to adhere to parliamentary procedure. We have nothing in the governing documents that requires it. And frankly, the board doesn't want it. I already know what you're going to say to me, but without having to follow parliamentary procedures, where would the pitfalls lie in terms of getting that done? There's no rules. There's no guidebook. I know you know the answer to this, but uh, (laughs) the example you just gave is pretty much the nonprofit corporation status. Think of nonprofits around the United States. They don't prescribe Roberts for all meetings. They don't have a whole lot of parliamentary rules. There's just a statute about running meetings and board meetings. In fact, that's the old model for community associations, HOAs and condos, before states started adopting specific community association statutes. In that particular example you just gave, where there there's no statute that requires you to follow Robert's Rules of Order, the body has not adopted any parliamentary authority in their bylaws, I'll, I'll give you a couple of answers. The membership could, of course, amend their governing documents to say they wish to follow Robert's Rules of Order at meetings. Even without Robert's Rules of Order as a prescribed parliamentary authority, courts have said that you can fall upon general principles of parliamentary procedure. And in fact, all organizations are supposed to follow fundamental principles of parliamentary procedure when they meet to conduct business. What's fundamental procedures? Well, notice of the meeting, enough people there for it to be legal, some sort of a vote that is taken that is fair. But to avoid the confusion about what are the rules if you don't have any rules, that's why most associations do at some point adopt some procedural rules, whether it's just a couple that say, how do you get recognized? How long can you speak? How do we take votes? Or if it's adopt Robert's Rules of Order as a parliamentary authority. And again, if you adopt Robert's as your parliamentary authority, you're basically saying we want our large meetings to be more formal. We want our board meetings to be informal. So it is not adopting a standard procedure for all meetings. It's it's adopting the proper procedure for different meetings. So let's say the meeting's going south and the division really exists on our board. Because as you know, as well as I do, we've been doing this a long time. Quite often, we do not have an entire board that sees eye to eye on a particular topic. Sometimes we even get so it gets so dysfunctional, there's factions. So we had a quorum. Some board members don't like where this is going. Three of them march out. I'm reminded of that scene in Animal House where in the middle of their, I I guess it was their suspension hearing, they stand up and they march out whistling. Does that destroy the quorum? And does all meeting have to stop? You have just point? taken us to Parliamentary Procedure 301, which I suspect was, was your intent. <laughs> in, in Roberts, 
Quorum is based on who's at the meeting right now. In other words, Roberts doesn't care what your quorum is. Roberts has a default quorum for a board of a majority of its members. But under Roberts, if you don't have a quorum when a vote is taken, that's a big deal. It's just like not having a quorum at the beginning of the meeting. Having said that, community association statutes, nonprofit statutes redefine quorum all the time. And many, many state statutes uh, define quorum as based on, for membership meetings, how many people were there at the beginning of the meeting, meaning that people show up, you have a quorum, people can leave and you still have a quorum under many state statutes for membership meetings. Under board meetings, Usually, state statutes provide that quorum is based on a, on a percentage or a majority of the total membership of the board, and very often, board has to have a quorum when a vote is taken. I don't know specifically for Florida, so I'm going to turn to, to you for that, but I do recall in the back of my head that under the Condominium Act, it's based on a, a majority of the voting interests for certain meetings, and it's based on like 30% of the voting interests in, in homeowner associations. But again, I don't practice law in Florida, so I'll leave that to you. Well, I will tell you, we have some case law down here. It really depends on whether or not the board is cognizant of the fact that the quorum has now been lost. Okay, so if you've got a few people who have left and you haven't noticed it and you say the quorum was established and you're still continuing on, that's a huge factor in terms of whether or not the subsequent work that was done, the motions that were passed, the decisions that were made um, were based on the fact that there was still a quorum and there was no knowledge that that quorum had been destroyed. But there is case law in Florida that if the board is aware that, that, that the quorum has been destroyed, then the meeting basically comes to an end. You can't continue and you would to do get the work. To the same place under Roberts. Roberts, one of the duties of the chair is to make certain a quorum is present and to absolutely make certain of it if anyone brings it to their attention. In a board of five people, it's pretty clear whether or not you have a quorum and the chair doesn't have to guess very much. On the other hand, if you had a membership meeting with a thousand people, you know, it might be questioned whether or not this many people here in this meeting right now constitute a, a quorum. Robert says you're presumed to have a quorum until someone raises the issue. But in Roberts, if it can be shown by clear and convincing evidence after the fact that there was a quorum missing, like, for instance, and again, this may not apply in Florida, we voted electronically or we voted and everyone had to vote either yes, no, or abstain. And we know the exact number of people who were present at the meeting the time was vote was taken. If it can be shown after the fact a quorum was not present, it would invalidate the action taken or it would need to be ratified at a later meeting. Now we've moved to Parliamentary Procedure 401. So the quorum is tricky. I mean, it is tricky mainly because state statutes play with quorum so often Roberts is not nearly as complicated as people make it out to be, but once you start adding layers of bylaws provision and you add layers of statutes and you have notice provisions that are different and quorum provisions that are different. And in North Carolina, our Planned Community Act follows the model, which is if you don't have a quorum at a membership meeting of a homeowners association, you can call another meeting and the quorum at that meeting will be half of what it was at the first meeting. And if you don't have a quorum at that meeting, you can call a third meeting and the quorum at that meeting will be half of what it was at the second meeting. And you keep having quorums until you're eventually going to have a meeting. And that has just recently been added to our Condominium Act as well. So there are 
so many different statutes out there that make things different in different states that it, it can get rather complicated once you try to blend them all together. Oh, you're absolutely right. And for instance, in Florida, we have to add on to the layers of the onion, the arbitration decisions that are out there, because we have mandatory pre-suit arbitration requirements. As part of our alternative dispute resolution practices down here, you've got to layer on the appellate cases. I mean, for instance, you, you touched on it, Jim. We have addressed over the years the problem that so many communities have in terms of achieving a quorum. So we now allow board members, and this was before the pandemic. I want to talk to you a little bit later about how we've kind of pivoted as a result of the pandemic to electronic meetings. But even before that, we allowed board members to attend board meetings electronically to achieve a quorum because we have so many board members down here in Florida who are seasonal, who live elsewhere a great part of the year. That is why our HOA Act Chapter 720 of the Florida statutes reduced the quorum for HOAs to 30%. That's for membership meetings, unless a lower percentage is required under the documents. So we really, our legislature has attempted to address the issues of problematic quorum requirements. Just to give you an example, Don, of how this varies out there in North Carolina, the default quorum for homeowner associations is 10%, just like it is in the Nonprofit Act. The default quorum for condominium membership meetings is 20%. And then it's a majority for board wow. meetings, and, and we don't need to go down this path. But if you absolutely want to see a place where statute completely throws parliamentary procedure on its head, Roberts is generally opposed to the idea of proxies, and that if you want to vote on something, you should show up at that meeting. So Roberts simply says that if, if you want to vote by proxy, either a statute or bylaws have to provide for it because this book does not provide for proxies, basically. And of course, as you know, in both Florida and most every other state, there are all sorts of statutes and and court opinions dealing with proxies where they are allowed in community associations normally because it's it's viewed to be a property right that you can transfer to someone else through a power of attorney. And that's all a proxy is. But you've got limited proxies, directed proxies, limited directed proxies, general proxies, quorum proxies. and, And so none of that is in Roberts. So yet again, the confusing part is not necessarily the parliamentary procedure. The, the confusing part is what we tend to do to it. I don't think Roberts has taken into account timeshare resorts, a number of which I represent with 2,000 unit weeks. Not going to happen, people people showing up, which is actually why our condominium act has an exemption for them using proxies for an election, whereas regular condominiums, they require an absentee ballot and a secret anonymous ballot to discourage. And that's what Roberts would do, in fact. It would allow absentee ballots or some sort of electronic meeting or electronic voting. So, Jim, assuming that we have a board meeting that is following a more formal parliamentary procedure or a membership meeting, which typically follows a more formal parliamentary procedure, what, in your experience, are the motions or procedures that are most commonly misunderstood when you're when you're adhering to a formal parliamentary procedure? Without question, the, the most misunderstood is this belief that there is one procedure for all meetings, regardless of size, and the small board meetings and 1,000-person membership meetings should be run exactly the same. And they are not. Roberts does recognize informal procedure for smaller boards. Once you move, move beyond that, there are, there are a number of myths People seem to think seconds are a much bigger deal than Roberts makes them out to be. As you and I discussed, a second is just, hey, do we want to start talking about this motion? If, if not two people want to speak about it, we won't even talk about it. But Roberts makes clear that once debate begins, it doesn't matter if it had a second or not. Once you vote on something, it doesn't matter whether it had a second or not. 
Uh, in fact, the name of the seconder doesn't even go in, in minutes. So seconds are not nearly as big a deal as people seem to make them out. Uh, some people think, again, we have to have a, a debate and vote on all issues when, as you and I discussed, non-controversial things are done through unanimous consent or general consent all the time, which is just the chair asking, is there any objection to doing X? And if nobody objects, you're done. People seem to think the maker of a motion always gets to speak last. And that's that's not true because we don't know who's going to be the last speaker. It might be the person who moves to close debate. Uh, people seem to think that if a person yells out question at a meeting, that somehow means we all have to stop talking because uh, debate has been closed. The motion to close debate is just a motion like any other motion. So if somebody wants to close debate, they need to get recognized by the chair. They need to move to close debate or call the previous question. It needs a second. And we actually have to take a vote. It takes a two-thirds vote for us to stop debating. Nobody can make us stop debating. So there, there are quite a few motions that the people seem to know more about it that's wrong than, than is actually correct, which is why, as you and I discussed at the beginning, you don't have to learn Robert's Rules of Order from beginning to end. I, I would not make anybody do that. The fact that you're <laughs> laughing says something about what you think about that. As an aside, I will tell you, by the way, the new 12th edition has come out. The the 11th edition was 716 pages. The 12th edition is 714 pages. And you would think, oh, it's gotten shorter. No, the pages have gotten bigger and the print has gotten smaller. <laughs> so the book has gotten larger. Uh, you don't need to know 714 pages of Roberts to run a good meeting. You need to know about, oh, 50 to 75 pages. And that, that's what I try to focus on in the Roberts Rules of Order Fast Track. It's just what do you have to know to run a good meeting? I was going to say, did you give us a yes. cheat sheet in your book? I haven't read well, the book and, yet, and but you did. If people don't okay. want to buy Thanks. the book, which is perfectly fine, at my website, which is just my name, www.jimslaughter.com, there are about 100 articles, all free. There's a cheat sheet to Robert's motions. There's a cheat sheet to the motions in Sturgis, the Standard Code of Parliamentary Procedure. There are a couple of other cheat sheets. There are about 500 blogs on parliamentary procedure. You have brain teasers. I won't tell you how I did on your brain teasers. So I will tell our folks listening, Jim has on his website, jimslaughter.com. It's five levels of brain teasers. I did pretty well on levels one through three. Four and five got a little dicey, but it's fun. I want you to clear up one motion for me personally. People shouting out point of order. It sounds like a judge who is hearing about an objection and is making either. It's very similar, but there's one big difference. A proper point of order is that a a member believes that the rules have been violated. Either the rules of parliamentary procedure that apply to this meeting or the bylaws have been violated. So point of order, we're beginning to discuss a new motion and we never voted on the old motion. The reason it doesn't need a vote, the reason it doesn't need a second is because the chair will respond to it by saying either, Donna, you are a brilliant parliamentarian. You are correct. We did not vote on that last motion, and we're going to go back and we're going to vote on that motion right now. Thank you very much. Or the chair is going to say, the point of order is not well taken because we did take a vote, and this is how many people voted in favor. This is how many people voted against. That motion is resolved. Your point of order is not well taken. But the difference in your example, Donna, as you have experienced, is generally when judges make a ruling, at least for the time, you are finished. I mean, you could appeal, but we're not talking about an instantaneous decision. Uh, There is a motion which sometimes follows a point of order, which is appeal from the decision of the chair. An appeal is where the body, by a majority vote, gets to decide whether or not the chair was right. Because at the end of the day, all procedural decisions are in the in the power of the of the body. And it kind of brings home that idea that at the end of the day, that the chair is the servant of the assembly, not the master of the assembly. So if someone does not like the answer to a point of order, they and a seconder can ask that the body decide the procedural issue through an appeal. 
Can you please repeat what you just said about the chair's function? That, that, it bears that, that the chair is the servant of the assembly, not the, the master of the assembly. As you know, and I know that you've written articles about this too, committee association presidents are not CEOs. Uh, they are they are not the president in the sense of making all final decisions. They are a board member, like other board members typically. And at the end of the day, the, the board, by a majority vote, tends to govern the association. The chair's role is to run the meeting and help facilitate the board in making decisions. But at the end of the day, the body is the ultimate decider of procedural issues before the board or before the membership. So interestingly enough, I actually have two older cooperative clients where their bylaws do specify that the president of the board serves as the CEO of the corporation. And again, it's been a challenge to explain to those individuals that while the documents from decades ago may say that their safety net is actually having it be a deliberative board decision when it comes to these types of things. So occasionally you do run across really antiquated language that says that one particular person does serve as the CEO of the corporation, even though we're talking about mostly not-for-profit corporations that are running residential communities, not-for-profit business entities. Jim, in addition to what we've been talking about, what are just some of your basic tips for running a smooth and effective board or membership meeting? Use unanimous consent when you can, because if something's non-controversial, why are we spending a lot of time taking the, the slow approach to getting the second having discussion when it is non-controversial? If, if you can use, is there any objection to and be done with it? That's certainly the case. Uh, the chair, if, if the chair is doing a good job, should repeat every motion before it is discussed, repeat every motion before it is voted on. And once a vote is taken under Roberts, the chair is not only supposed to state whether the motion passed or failed, but what is the effect of that vote? In other words, you might think, wow, this chair is so repetitive. Absolutely. Because the worst thing that can happen at a meeting is to find out you either didn't know what was being discussed or even worse, you didn't know what you just voted on was what you were voting on. You thought you were voting on this amendment, but we actually just hired that general contractor for all this money that you were talking about earlier. And then you're trying to rewind what happened. So again, don't need to know all of Roberts, but you absolutely, the chair, the presiding officer should know the essentials. And lastly, there should just be a message of fairness. And by that, I mean, as, as we talked about a bit ago, regardless of the parliamentary procedure, if members have the feeling that this is going to be a fair meeting, People are going to get to talk. They're going to get, to get to get to say how they feel about things. And then there's going to be a vote. And the vote's going to be fair. And I'm either going to have the votes or I'm not going to have the votes. People tend to come out of that situation very differently than if they feel they were not given an opportunity to either be at a meeting or that somehow the vote was unfair. That tends to be what causes fights at meetings. I would say 98% of the meetings I attend, Jim, there is a limit on the amount of time that the members can speak, okay, on, an, on a specific agenda item. Now, under 720, our HOA Act, it says they have to be able to speak at least three minutes on an agenda item. The, the Condominium and Cooperative Acts do not have similar language. Some communities, they let people speak as long as they want, but that can go on for hours in particularly large communities. But I rarely see a limit on the amount of time a board member can speak on an agenda item at a board meeting. Do you ever recommend that the board members be capped? Boards and committees are tasked with getting to the bottom of things. 
And sometimes that's longer than just a, a minute of talking if that's what the rule is. That's why Roberts says these informal rules for boards and committees include no limits as to how long people can talk, no limits as to how many people, how many times someone can speak. And normally there's no total time block. With that said, in Roberts, if you're at a membership meeting and do not have a rule to the contrary, Roberts allows every person to speak up to 10 minutes a time, which I will tell you, 10 minutes is a long freaking time, uh, particularly in a virtual meeting. And so it's not uncommon that I see rules for membership meetings that reduce speaking maybe to five minutes or three minutes, depending on the situation. Rarely do I see rules that restrict how much board members can talk, partly because in a, in a board of five or seven people, there's only so long people are going to talk. Anyway, it's a, it's a different situation than hundreds of members at a membership meeting. I don't know, Jim. I've seen some people, they like to talk. And, and, and sometimes it's not a question. It's more a statement. It's a, it's, it's a, a whole soliloquy. But, but I see your point. I wanted to mention to you that, you know, I know some association attorneys who, when they're doing their document rewrites, Jim, they routinely remove any requirement under the old documents to follow either Robert's Rules of Order or parliamentary procedure. And lately, I have, I'm rarely seeing that, that requirement in new developer documents I come across. Do you think that we're trending away from using Robert's Rules or parliamentary procedures at association meetings? It's actually over the last 15 years, more states, I guess the most recent one was Connecticut, have put in their statute that unless another parliamentary authority is, is selected in the governing documents, that Robert's Rules of Order, newly revised, is the parliamentary authority for membership and board meetings. In other words, these other states have taken the approach that we'd rather have some rule defined rather than no rules. Uh, North Carolina is one of the states that requires Roberts by statute, but we still regularly see Roberts listed in the bylaws. The reason it's not a big deal or the reason it's not a concern really is because, again, membership meetings are more formal. Board meetings tend to be very informal. The concern with adopting a parliamentary authority is, oh, we don't want our meetings to get bogged down with formal parliamentary procedure in our board. So again, that's not what Robert says. Robert says that boards are supposed to be informal. So it might be something that's happening, but I would much rather know what the rules are than have no rules, because that would seem to just suggest the chair can do whatever the chair wishes. Many of these things we talked about, like what motion is appropriate to challenge the chair if you have no parliamentary authority? Are you getting the sense that Florida <laughs> chairs don't like to be challenged? And I'm joking, but I, you know, there, I think there's probably a reason that Florida has not yet amended our statutes to require adherence to parliamentary procedure. It should be interesting to see if we're going to head in that direction because, look, we are preparing a lot of board member codes of conduct for that very reason that we want to lay some groundwork. There needs to be you know, some understanding of how we're operating and who's doing what and, and injecting both transparency and fairness. That uh, was the, the impetus of so many of these state statutes with the belief that it's an owner protection statute, because at least owners showing up in a meeting would know what the ground rules for the meeting are unless they've been changed. All of these statutes, as far as I know, do allow for the organization to adopt different rules if they wish, but, but most organizations just say we'll follow Roberts. That's a perfect segue to my next question. Maybe we have somebody who does know 714 pages of the 12th edition, okay? How persnickety do we need to get when it comes to the way, let's say motions are worded. So I looked between uh, the 12th edition and I just pulled out out of random one, one uh, change, which was saying that a motion 
uh, is out of order. Instead of 12th edition's recommended now language is not in order. So how persnickety we need to be if somebody says not in order, I mean, says out of order, and it should be not in order. Do we just let things like that go? Or well, what's your, what's your philosophy on that? Robert's Rules of Order, Henry Martin Robert, said that, that meetings were not a class in parliamentary procedure. They're, they're there to, to get something done. So it'd be good for the chair to know the way things are phrased. Uh, about every 10 years, a new Roberts comes out. They, they tend to change the names of some motions, or they tend to add things that reflect current practice, like the most recent edition gets more heavily into electronic meetings and voting. Uh, they decided to start taking out the phrase illegal in some of the places it was used in Roberts because they sort of said, look, we're not a book deciding whether something's legal or not, so why are we calling this an illegal motion? We'll, we'll just say that it's a motion that's not in order. We'll get away from some of that sort of stuff. But if a member is raising those sorts of issues while the meeting is run. It not only is it an annoyance, uh, but it serves no purpose. And in fact, uh, under Robert, if somebody tries to make motions that the body doesn't want, very quickly, the body by a majority vote will shut those things down. So at the end of the day, somebody who knows Roberts and is trying to be persnickety, they can try to make a mess, but the chair should call them to order. And, and at the end of the day, the, the body by a majority vote is going to decide we don't like this amendment or we know we don't want to postpone this matter to later in the meeting. And so the hope would be and the expectation under Roberts is you will debate things and then the majority will have its say. My experience has been that there are a lot of boards out there that are intimidated by the entire parliamentary process, and they see it as a potential weapon for the resident parliamentarian to use to bludgeon the board, okay? It's the person that the board doesn't have time to read 714 pages of Robert's Rules. Hopefully, they've read, you know, books like yours where they can get some takeaways. Uh, We have board certification requirements in Florida, and typically that does not require the teaching of parliamentary procedure. So how would you convince boards to embrace Robert's rules. I don't know why any leader would not want to at least learn the basics of of Robert's rules of order and parliamentary procedure for a couple of reasons. I mean, one, there's a legal aspect of procedure. As as you and I have already discussed, if if you mess up quorum, if you mess up notice, if you take the wrong vote, you may find that what you did, you didn't actually do, which can be embarrassing. It can lead to legal problems. Uh, but I'm, I'm going to push that to the side and simply say that proper procedure can make meetings shorter and it can make meetings fair. And if you plan to continue an association life or, or whatever organization you might belong to, of course, Robert's Rules of Order doesn't just apply possibly to community association meetings. You might belong to a professional association like the College of Community Association Lawyers or the Community Associations Institute. Their meetings are governed by procedure. Uh, And so if you want to continue and to possibly be a leader in any of these organizations, I would recommend you at least learn the basics. I think the way people get intimidated is they hear there's this thing called Robert's Rules of Order. They go pick up a copy of 714 pages of little tiny print without any cartoons, not a lot of diagrams, and it is overwhelming. That's because it's it's not a book that is designed to be read starting at the beginning and going to the end. It's more like a dictionary. But there's some great things in it. But another misnomer or a myth out there, Donna, is people seem to think Roberts is a book on motions. Motions only take up like a quarter of Roberts, just a quarter. It's a great resource. I mean, there's a chapter in Roberts on tips for the inexperienced presiding officer that tells a chair how to run a meeting if they've never run one about tone, demeanor, phrasing of things. There's a chapter on how secretaries should do their job. There's a set of sample minutes that show that minutes are a record for what was done at a meeting. 
not what was said at a meeting. There's rules for boards. There's rules for committees. Again, it's a great resource for people who, who live in meetings. I wouldn't recommend picking that up as the resource that you intend to learn procedure from. I know it's incredibly self-serving, but the reason I wrote Robert's Rules of Order Fast Track, it's designed to be a quick, what do you need to know for a meeting in two days? It's a much shorter book. It does have some graphs and charts in it, but it doesn't have 82 motions in it. It has between 10 and 15 motions that you might see at a membership meeting. The second book is Notes and Comments on Robert's Rules, fifth edition. It's a Q&A on the motions in Robert. So if you're interested in how does the motion to close debate or the previous question most often get used wrong? It has the questions I get asked about that motion all the time, and then it has the answers for each one. So it's it's for those who want to know a little bit more about parliamentary procedure. You're making me think I need to send all my clients this as a Christmas gift. <laughs> Listen, you mentioned earlier about electronic meetings and how there's now in the 12th edition of Robert's Rules, a little more attention being paid to electronic meetings. I will tell you, many of my clients, Jim, are still using Zoom. During the pandemic, particularly, we could not get boards together and we could not get membership meetings together. And so it allowed some means of meeting. I will say as an aside, prior editions of Roberts frowned upon this idea of electronic meetings because it it views a meeting as everybody being in one place at one time. But of course, the technology has almost developed to the point where, where that has been solved. Not quite, but almost been solved. Another pro that I know you've encountered is it is pretty nice to have dinner with, say, family and two minutes later to be at a board meeting or a membership meeting in some other part of the state. Uh, It's also allowed people. uh, I've talked to a number of uh, parents with small children who said they would not have volunteered for the board if it were not for electronic meetings because they simply could not have gone out at night and and done this particular meeting. So it's opening up a host of, of possibilities. Uh, Roberts basically says to have an electronic meeting, there has to be authority somewhere, either in a statute or in the bylaws of the association. Other than that, it then has some tips on rules to consider. The, the cons of electronic meetings that we have not yet quite cured is the dynamic of an electronic meeting, as all of us know from Zoom meetings, is different. There are going to be technology issues, and sometimes you can't do anything about them. The noise in the background is that there's a huge thunderstorm starting here in North Carolina, and I may lose you at any minute, and that can happen on a Zoom meeting, either for the entire group or for individuals. People will say things in a Zoom meeting they would never say in person, and, I, and by that I mean worse things. And I think it's because they don't really feel accountable to anybody. At a meeting, you're around your neighbors or your peers or people you know. And on the other hand, a Zoom meeting kind of feels like a thousand people sitting at home in their living rooms just doing their own little thing. And as you know, people often are doing their own thing. People tend to pay much less attention on a Zoom meeting than they would have to do if they were in person. And so so there is a different dynamic. We've seen some votes get voted down by Zoom that would have absolutely passed if it had been done in person. And it was just because of the dynamics of the virtual environment. I don't think the electronic meetings and voting are going away. And with technology and with use, it may be exactly like an in-person meeting, but I don't believe we're there quite yet. Well, then there's also the power of the mute button and the fact that that point of order we talked about earlier is very hard to do a point of order if you've been muted throughout the entire electronic meeting or even, you know, raise your hand function. One of the things I mentioned in my list of differences, as you've just noted, is transparency. At an in-person meeting, if, if Charlie goes and stands at the mic and doesn't get called on by the chair, everybody knows that Charlie's not getting called on by the chair. In an electronic meeting, you don't really know who's in the queue. 
you don't really know where they are. You don't know if somebody got booted out intentionally or on person. Of course, none of that, none of that should happen. And if, for instance, as can happen in an electronic meeting, a member starts being aggressive towards the chair or the board or says something that perhaps the board does not wish to hear, there is certainly a temptation to mute or to disconnect them. And so there is an, an aspect of transparency that does not exist at an in-person meeting with a virtual meeting. So I want to pivot a little bit and talk about something else that you're really good at, which is leading people. In 2014, you served as the president of the College of Community Association Lawyers. We call it CCAL. I've been a, a member since 2006. How long have you been a part of that organization? About a a little more than a decade beyond beyond that, but at this point, it's, it's hard to believe that it's even been a decade since I served as a national president, so thanks for pointing that out. <laughs> I think I just aged myself out of this conversation. When you ran for the presidency, what were your goals, and do you feel that you accomplished them? Well, I, I had not intended to run, and some people talked to me about running just saying that it's a great organization. Of course, if you're active with any professional group, uh, you should take an interest in the organization. The main reason I ran was I just thought there should be more communications between the organization and its, its members. As you may recall, uh, back in the day, Donna, that the organization existed. It recognizes attorneys who have talked so much, spoken so much, accomplished things within their profession and as well as in the industry. And it's to recognize attorneys that spend a tremendous amount of their time in the community association world. But once the recognition was done, it, there was not as, as much stuff then as there is now. And that's not because of me. It's because of a whole lot of people over a whole lot of years. But of course, if you look now at the College of Community Association Lawyers uh, website, you'll see all sorts of case law updates. They help amicus briefs get drafted around the country. They're, they assist with legislative proposals, just lots of stuff that the college does now. So I'm proud to have been a, a small part of it. It's a fantastic organization. And, and you're right. When we talk about how do boards re find the resources, like there's so many books on Robert's rules. How do they find the right? You know, anybody can throw Robert's on, on a book. When it comes to CCAL being a, a member of, I guess we're not called, calling ourselves fellows of the College of Community Association Lawyers. Do you think that volunteer board members and managers really understand what it means to be admitted into the college? Oh, certainly not, because the college does not advertise itself uh, quite in that way. But everybody within the community associations world, I would suspect, tends to know that there are individuals who are managers with some sort of credentials and managers who have no credentials. And very often, depending on the size of an association or, or its needs, people tend to look for a licensed and credentialed manager. The credentialed manager showing the individual that they, they have experience and knowledge and expertise in certain things. That's all that the College of Community Association Lawyers is. It's intended that if you're looking out in the world, if you're looking for an attorney that you know has a great depth of experience with homeowner and condominium associations, the, the College of Community Association Lawyers credentials would let you know that. There's a list of uh, college members online at CAIS website. There are, of course, not college members in every part of every state. So CAI also has a, a service provider list where you can look for attorneys. And my experience personally is I've never referred someone to any college member in any state where that college member, if they did not live in the part of the state where help was needed, where they did not have a list of attorneys that they recommended to that person. I, I can't say enough nice things about the College of Community Association lawyers, all of the members of it, 
like you and the others that I dealt with are just outstanding attorneys, and I have generally found them to just be nice people. And so it was a pleasure to be involved in the, in the college in my day. Well, I just want to say you did an incredible job when you were president. I will tell you that list of CCAL members is my starting point, Jim, when I'm asked for referrals in other states. And so I will go to the list and I'll say, here are the attorneys who are members of CCAL. And I will explain to the person asking for the referral exactly what that means to be a, a fellow in, in the College of Community Association lawyers. And I do the same thing and always point out, while there's no guarantee that any attorney will be perfect for a specific situation, you're more likely to find the best match by seeking out an attorney who regularly practices community association law. We've said this a couple times throughout this podcast episode. You've got a new book, Notes and Comments on Robert's Rules, 5th edition. That's correct. I want to know what's different about the latest book, what new stuff you got in there. And and then I'm always asking you two-part questions. And I want to ask you, what about the subject continues to intrigue you? Uh, one of the fascinating things about it is it's constantly changing. As you and I have already discussed, statutes change what the normal rules are, rules books change. Sometimes the Roberts changes. Sometimes the changes in Roberts are significant. This time is more sort of uh, clarifying editing changes, so it's not quite as big. But the difference between the two books, Donna, uh, notes and comments is, I I hate to use the word textbook because that's not the right thing. I'll I'll reverse the order here. Roberts Rules of Order Fast Track is just a quick and easy guide to what are the essential things you need to know if you're going to participate in a meeting in the next couple of days. It only has a couple of motions in it. It kind of gets to the essentials of board procedure pretty quickly. Notes and comments on Roberts Rules 5th edition takes the motions in Roberts and through Q&A, the whole book is Q&A, looks at what has changed in the most recent Roberts, how do those motions get used, and then, because some people are interested in this, why is it done that way and how is it different in Roberts than in some of these other books? Sturgis does many things different than Roberts. Sturgis is uh, the second most popular parliamentary book out there. They don't have a motion called the previous question. They have a motion called close debate and vote immediately. Why? Because they think that's more descriptive of what the motion does. And sometimes you can better understand Roberts by understanding why other books on parliamentary procedure have gone different ways. Well, you've been so generous with your time. I really think everybody listening that you need to understand what parliamentary procedure can do to make your meetings fairer, more transparent, shorter, more effective. Jim, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for joining us today. Don't forget to follow and rate us on your favorite podcast platform or visit TakeItToTheBoard.com for more ways to connect. 